Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, Beth Dunn has an update on the reorganization of emergency services on the Outer Cape following Lower Cape Ambulance's decision to shut down this year. I've got stories about affordable housing developments in Provincetown, Truro, and Wellfleet. Will David is here with his exclusive WOMR weekend weather outlook. And Ira Wood has a matter of opinion that resistance begins with remembrance. Provincetown is speeding up its plan to hire more EMS employees in the wake of the Lower Cape Ambulance Association's announcement that it would shut down this year. The town is proposing to fund 16 full-time Provincetown Fire Department and EMS employees for the summer. The original plan was to hire eight new people this year and eight more next year. In a statement, town manager Alex Morse acknowledged that the decision by Lower Cape Ambulance to cease operations was causing anxiety for some Outer Cape residents, but he expressed confidence that Provincetown has the resources it needs to maintain fire and EMS coverage in the months to come. The move to hire more employees more quickly will require an article for an operating override at the annual town meeting on April 3rd. The move would create the first full-time fire department in Provincetown history. A major expansion of the department has been discussed for years. Provincetown has an unusual hybrid emergency service, which includes a paid rescue squad of medics, a contract with Lower Cape Ambulance Association for extra ambulance service, and an all-volunteer fire department. Travato told the board that he could hire nearly all of the Lower Cape Ambulance's people and avoid a disruption to the town's emergency medical capacities. The cost for the proposed expansion of the department is more than $2.3 million, but the town will no longer have to pay $1 million to Lower Cape Ambulance, and the town expects to collect anywhere from $800,000 to $1 million in ambulance fees after Lower Cape Ambulance ceases operations. The new revenue can't be included in this year's budget, meaning that the expenses will need to be paid this year with the Proposition 2.5 override. Moore says he plans to post the new positions in February so that work can begin on interviewing current Lower Cape Ambulance staff and recruiting new staff. While Morse and Travato were optimistic about the chance of hiring the EMTs the town needs to maintain service, 17 of the 21 paramedics and EMTs who work for Lower Cape Ambulance signed a letter dated January 18th to the Provincetown Select Board outlining their concerns. According to the letter's author, Lower Cape Ambulance paramedic Patrick O'Neill, the plan will leave Provincetown badly understaffed in 2023, with only two ambulance crews per shift in the height of the summer season. 
O'Neill wondered how Provincetown would be able to hire eight paramedics with firefighting certifications in such a short time. As it stands, Provincetown's seasonal rescue squad is made up of Lower Cape Ambulance employees who work 80-hour weeks working for Provincetown while doing their year-round jobs for Lower Cape Ambulance. Those leaving Lower Cape Ambulance could be hired into full-time positions elsewhere, since there is a shortage of paramedics across Cape Cod, he said. Truro has been trying to hire four medics for months with no success. Truro wants to hire an additional four in the next year. None of the Lower Cape Ambulance staff have applied for those jobs, said Truro Town Manager Darren Tangeman. On January 23rd, Provincetown Fire Chief Mike Travato and Town Manager Alex Morse presented an updated plan to the select board. Travato said he's prepared to provide year-round benefits, even for those who don't want to be firefighters. Travato said he would be able to build the firefighting side of the department slowly, as long as the medical side is fully covered. On January 24th, O'Neill said he was encouraged by Travato and Morse's new plan. While a shortage of medics could potentially affect emergency services in Provincetown and Truro, the staffing shortage at the Truro Council on Aging has already meant reduced services, including van rides and Friday lunches. But town manager Darren Tangeman told about 100 people who came to his January 19th presentation on the subject that the dry spell in hiring at the COA should be over by the end of this month. The Council on Aging is missing an office assistant, an outreach coordinator, two van drivers, and a cook. But as of this week, there is a new COA deputy director, East Ham resident Michelle Peterson. Peterson is a social worker who previously worked in long-term care at Liberty Commons in Chatham. The role of COA director has been vacant for over a year, during which time the town's organizational chart for community services changed. Damien Clements, who had been the town's recreation director, was promoted to community services director. Then, two former director positions in recreation and at the COA became deputy director jobs. Tangeman said that this structure would allow the community services director to help when there are vacancies on either side of the community center. Meanwhile, Tangeman said interviews were underway for a new office assistant and outreach coordinator, and both jobs should be filled soon. Tangeman credited a pay increase for van drivers from $16 to $24 an hour for several applications coming in for that position. Peterson, the new deputy director, told The Independent that she's looking forward to bringing life back to the COA and that she's confident she will soon have new colleagues to work with. In Wellfleet, the Cape Cod National Seashore is planning to remove dead trees and shrubs from about 120 acres in the Duck Harbor area, where saltwater from Cape Cod Bay has washed in regularly over the past two years. Jeffrey Sanders, the seashore's chief of natural resource management and science, said the area has undergone a drastic transition, as what had been a wetland and forested area was inundated with saltwater, resulting in a massive die-off of vegetation. According to the seashore, removing the dead vegetation at Duck Harbor will promote the natural recruitment of salt marsh plants, 
and increase the ecological productivity of the area while helping to minimize breeding habitat for mosquitoes. Residents of Wellfleet still talk about the summer of 2021 when a mosquito boom in the area made outdoor activities almost unbearable. Cape Cod mosquito control crews have worked frequently around Duck Harbor over the last two years, applying larvicide, cutting access paths, and clearing out waterways to reduce mosquito reproduction opportunities. The effort paid off, and the summer of 2022 was significantly less riddled with mosquitoes for many Welflesians. The tree-clearing project will likely get underway by the end of January and will involve heavy-duty equipment, including an excavator. Parts of the area will be closed off during the operation to keep the public safe. Sanders said work can't be done after March 31st because of the presence of endangered bats in the area. Mulching of the dead vegetation will take place on site, and the mulch will be spread around the area to help promote the growth of native species. Seashore scientists and staff from the Center for Coastal Studies will monitor the changes that occur in the area, where the return of saltwater-tolerant plants has already been observed. The Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown has named Mark Adams as the first scientist-artist-in-residence. Employed by the Cape Cod National Seashore as a cartographer for over 30 years, Adams has collaborated frequently on projects with the Center for Coastal Studies as a scientist. Now, Adams will create public programs that merge the center's scientific work with the creative arts. Adams' first program will be with the Fine Arts Work Center on February 3rd, where he will create a map of the land and sea that highlights areas of research and invite participants to add their own words or artwork. Adams' experience is in ecology, coastal geology, scientific illustration, and field sketchbooks. He had a solo museum exhibition at the Provincetown Art Association and Museum in 2017 and a 2021 installation at the Cape Cod Museum of Art. After leaving the National Park Service last year, his focus is now on using painting, printmaking, and public art installations to create an immersive experience of the marine environment. You can find out more at coastalstudies.org. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. In an emergency session held last week, the Provincetown Select Board approved a revision of the planned mix of units at the affordable housing development to be built at Jerome Smith Road. The 65 apartments will have the same mix of studio, one-bedroom, and two-bedroom units, but rules governing who can live in the apartments had to be changed. In a bid to get more federal money, the select board unanimously endorsed a downward adjustment to the income limits for people who could rent apartments planned for the former VFW site. In October of 2021, the nonprofit developer that won the right to build the project was praised for its willingness to include middle income units as a key factor in their winning application. However, 
Most state and federal programs that support affordable rental housing are for people with incomes below 80% of area median income. For Barnstable County in 2022, the median income is just over $76,000 for a single person and $87,000 for two people. Andrew Waxman of The Community Builders said renting to those earning more would disqualify the project both for the low-income housing tax credit and for workforce funding. Instead, the community builders recommended a strategy of maximizing federal dollars and minimizing the amount required from the state. The state agency typically awards a maximum of $100,000 per unit to a project. The development in Provincetown currently requires $200,000 per unit from the state, a level that would be highly unlikely to be approved. The change to AMIs will harness about $3.3 million in additional federal funds, which will reduce the state request to $149,000 per unit, which the developer called hopefully an acceptable range for the state agency. The revised plan allocates four more units for people earning less than 30% of AMI, or around $23,000 for one person. There will be four fewer units for people earning between 30 and 60% of AMI, and the 16 units that had been reserved for people earning between 80 and 120% of AMI will now be for tenants making 80% or less. The four market rate rental units will remain unregulated. Capping the workforce units at 80% makes those units eligible for low-income housing tax credits and significant additional federal subsidy. Allowing for more access to federal funds subsequently reduces the state contribution to a level that's more likely to win funding without increasing Provincetown's share of $3 million. This according to Lindsay Gale, Senior Development Project Manager at the Community Builders. Select board members worried that the new income mix would exclude middle-income earners, including many town employees who are struggling to find secure housing here. In response to this concern, Gale said that there are municipal employees, including teachers and teachers' assistants, who are eligible for these units, and that 80% is still a workforce tier. Gale also said that the four unrestricted units planned could also serve as higher AMI workforce housing. Despite its concerns, the select board approved the revised plan unanimously. According to the community builders, construction could begin in early 2024. Since the bid to do the work was awarded in late 2021, the cost to build the project has nearly doubled, going from $22.3 million to a current projection of nearly $40 million. In early December, the developer asked Wellfleet's Community Preservation Committee to contribute $500,000 to support Provincetown's project. It's not unusual for surrounding towns to contribute to their neighbors' affordable housing projects on the theory that such developments benefit the region as a whole. But with limited funds, 
Wellfleet's committee decided to keep the money in their town. The affordable housing on Lawrence Road in Wellfleet has seen a similar spike in costs, going from $20 million to over $34 million. The developers of that project have submitted requests for $100,000 each to Provincetown, Orleans, and Brewster. No decisions have been made on those requests, but Community Development Partnership CEO Jay Coburn said those towns are juggling requests for funding for other projects, both within and outside their communities. The CDP and its partner, the Preservation of Affordable Housing, had also requested $1.5 million in community preservation money from Wellfleet at the December meeting. At that time, committee chair Gary Sorkin told the panel that a total of $1.3 million was available for this year's distribution. Every town on the Outer Cape currently has an affordable housing project in the works. Beside the request from the community builders for its Provincetown project, two other requests related to affordable housing in Orleans were submitted to the Wellfleet Community Preservation Committee. The Housing Assistance Corp. requested $100,000 for 14 units planned for Main Street in Orleans, and Penrose developers asked for $100,000 for 62 units of affordable, rent-restricted, and workforce housing in the former Cape Cod 5 building on West Road. The committee voted unanimously to recommend $1 million for the Lawrence Road project in Wellfleet, and $20,000 for Penrose's project in Orleans because it has completed its state funding round and is deemed shovel-ready. Wellfleet voters will still have to approve the CPA allocation at this spring's annual town meeting. The committee voted to defer the requests from HACC and the community builders. Those projects have not yet gone through the state and federal funding rounds. For Provincetown's development, the community builders have made requests for $500,000 each to the Community Preservation Committees in Truro and Provincetown. If those funds are recommended by the committees, they'll also need to be approved at town meetings. The state has set a goal of having 10% of housing stock qualify as affordable. According to the state's subsidized housing inventory, Provincetown was at 9.7%, Orleans at 9%, and Wellfleet at 2.5% as of December 2020. Truro is also working on addressing the housing needs in that town. The Walsh Property Community Planning Committee, which has been meeting regularly for two years, took its first actual vote on January 18th. By seven votes to three, the committee endorsed an interim number of 252 housing units to be built on a portion of the 70-acre property that the town purchased in 2019. That move allows traffic and water studies by the Cape Cod Commission and outside engineers to begin. The motion from member Morgan Clark called for Truro to meet 60% of the need laid out in its housing production plan at the Walsh property, 
with 152 units of affordable housing and 100 units of market rate housing. The committee's co-chair said that the committee needed to agree on a tentative number of housing units in order to move forward with the traffic and water analyses. The decision to move forward came after animated discussion over the course of a couple of meetings, but with a tentative number of units in hand, the studies of the impact of the development can proceed. The Lily House, a community home for living and dying in Wellfleet, is the recipient of a $30,000 challenge grant from the Turn Foundation, based in East Ham. The funds will support the installation of solar panels. My Generation Energy, a solar energy installation and development company based in Hyannis, will complete the project. My Generation Energy is a WOMR underwriter. The challenge grants terms require Lily House to raise an additional $30,000 in matching contributions from the community. The 49-module array of solar panels will cover the front and back of the Lily House roof for maximum solar energy production. The projected annual electric savings is over $6,000, and that amounts to more than $125,000 over 20 years. In addition to the financial benefits, solar energy is also an investment in the environment as solar panels don't produce air pollution or emit greenhouse gases and help to mitigate climate change. You can find out more about the Lily House and the Challenge Grant at the website, thelilyhouse.org. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. After a very active and stormy weather pattern, mostly fair weather will be the theme from this afternoon through most of the weekend. A minor disturbance will pass well to our north Saturday, and another will follow on its heels late Sunday into Monday, and that one could give us a chance of light rain and mostly seasonal temperatures for late January. By midweek, A coastal storm near the mid-Atlantic may come close enough to us to give us some light rain and snow, but at this point, most of our reliable models keep the storm far enough out at sea with minimal impact. Fair weather should linger through late week, but there are now indications that a piece of frigid Arctic air, or that infamous polar vortex, will head southeastward toward New England. If this occurs, it could bring the coldest air of the season to the Outer Cape, complete with strong north winds and ocean-effect snow. Remember, the last invasion of this frigid air occurred in December, but the heart of that record cold was aimed at the middle of the country. The timing of this potential bitter blast would probably be about a week from now, so perhaps next Friday and into part of next weekend. So stay tuned. Elsewhere across the nation, an Alberta clipper will spread a narrow swath of snow from the northern plains to the upper Midwest to interior New York and northern New England. A larger storm will bring more significant snow to the Midwest, including Chicago and Milwaukee this weekend. On the warmer side, showers and thunderstorms will again erupt across the south, where pockets of severe weather are possible 
from the southern plains to the southeast coast. The west, which has been relatively tranquil, could see more wind, rain, and mountain snow this weekend. And the only really warm place will be Florida, but that may also come with increasing chances of showers and thunderstorms. And finally, even though the winter solstice, or the day with the shortest daylight of the year, was over five weeks ago, this week is climatologically the coldest here in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's because of the Earth's lag effect. In autumn, as the days grew shorter, Earth released some of that stored heat from the previous summer back into the atmosphere in order to achieve a temperature balance. Most, if not all, of that stored heat is released in late January, making this the coldest period in our part of the world. But the good news is as this is happening, we're now gaining daylight every day as the sun makes the journey toward the equator and into the Northern Hemisphere over the next two months. And so the cycle continues. By the way, if that piece of polar vortex makes its way across New England and the Outer Cape next week, it would be arriving at the most appropriate time. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, bright sunshine, highs around 41. Tonight, becoming partly cloudy, lows around 35. Saturday, mostly sunny with a gusty southwest wind, highs around 45. And on Sunday, mostly cloudy and breezy, highs around 48. Look for that chance of light rain Sunday night and Monday. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. January 27th is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, a time that commemorates the victims of the Nazi genocide which resulted in the murder of one-third of the world's Jewish population. Although only the Jews were slated for total annihilation, untold numbers of Romani people, Jehovah's Witnesses, Gay and transgender people, communists and disabled people were also slaughtered in pogroms and mass shootings, by extermination through slave labor in concentration camps, and in gas chambers and gas fans. The date marks the day that Auschwitz concentration camp was liberated by the Russian army, and although it was chosen by the United Nations to remember victims of the Nazi Holocaust, I think it's well to remember the countless other genocides in modern times that were intended to destroy a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. There was Stalin's Great Famine in 1932 in which over four million Ukrainians were knowingly starved to death. There was the Cambodian Genocide, in which the Communist Party Secretary General Pol Pot engineered the deaths of about one quarter of his country's population. In our own country, the Native American population in North America was reduced from about 12 million to 250,000 through outright killings, slaughter of the buffalo herds, and infectious diseases like smallpox. 
15 million African-American men, women, and children were victims of the transatlantic slave trade. Between 1915 and 1918, about one and a half million Armenians were killed by the Turks. During the rape of Nanking, the Japanese brutally murdered 300,000 Chinese. The horrors go on and on, and with the addition of each one, the tragedies become too enormous to comprehend. In July 1995, Bosnian Serb troops descended on the town of Srebrenica, killing 8,000 Muslim men and boys over 12 years old in a war that displaced over 2 million. In 2003, a civil war began in Darfur in which hundreds of villages were destroyed, a half million people killed, and five times that many forced into refugee camps. One Hungarian survivor of the Nazi Holocaust, who was four years old when it began, recalled that it all started very slowly, step by step, she said, First, her non-Jewish friends did not want to play with her anymore. Then, she was scared to say that she was Jewish. Then, Jews were beaten up on the street. Soon enough, business licenses were refused to Jewish owners, so they had to close up their shops. Next, Jews had to wear a yellow star, slowly, step by step. After that, all Jewish schools were shut down, and then came the ghettos, and then the transport to the camps. I think that whenever we observe a day that commemorates genocide, we feel we need to do something to stop it from ever happening again. And these being enormous political movements, we don't know what to do. So we freeze, we feel helpless, and because that's a really uncomfortable feeling, it's just easier to forget all about it. But the key, the purpose of the day, the only thing we're really asked to do is to remember. To remember that every one of the millions who were shot or tortured or enslaved was just a man or a woman or a child snatched out of an ordinary life not that much different than ours. To remember that it can happen anywhere, any place, to conservatives or liberals, but mostly to people who have no politics at all. To remember that it all starts slowly with an unchallenged prejudice or an ambitious politician. To remember that we do have a voice and we can step up and hold people accountable. That's really all that's required of us. Not to blow it off, but to remember. Remember that holocausts have happened again and again, and they can happen to us. Oftentimes, resistance starts with remembrance. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. 
And now stay tuned for Friday afternoon jazz. It's Lush Life with Scott Penn on listener-supported community radio, WOMR.